We have come to part number six, which I've entitled, The Worst of All Possible Endings. And I'm telling you what, you guys, if we ended after part six, if there were only part six to this, and we ended at the end of this, it would indeed be the worst of all possible endings. It would. The verse that I chose, or the verses that I chose to put right underneath of the title, are from Acts chapter 3, uh, Acts chapter 13. This is from Paul's synagogue speech in Pisidian Antioch. This is actually one of the fullest records, one of the two fullest records we have anywhere in the New Testament of a synagogue speech, a synagogue service. The other one <clears throat> is what we made reference to earlier on today when Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth, his home synagogue, and he read from the scroll from Isaiah chapter 61. I've selected verses 28 and 29. Here's what Paul says at that point. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And that's the end of verse 29. A little bit of review here. Following the raising of Lazarus and the Sanhedrin decision to put Jesus to death, Jesus withdrew to the village of Ephraim. He withdrew to Ephraim. Now, there's a map that I put on the board, and uh, Ephraim is not even, well, it's labeled on this map. You might not be able to see it because of the mountains that are indicated here, but Ephraim is here. Here's Jerusalem. Here is Bethany right by Jerusalem, about two miles away. That's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Then Jesus went to Ephraim. He hasn't even entered into the area of Samaria to go to Ephraim. Now, you don't have a space to write this in your notes, but you can finish that line, even as the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover was drawing near. This was the last Passover, the final Passover, the Passover at which Jesus would give his life. Now, in Acts chapter 11, where we read the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and we find the fact that Jesus did withdraw to Ephraim in verse 54, and the Passover was drawing near in verse 55, between those two verses, between those two verses, there was likely sufficient time to fit in the travels that are indicated by the synoptics. Culver refers to the last trip to Jerusalem, and you can see the words on the screen right now. He refers to that last trip to Jerusalem as lengthy and circuitous. Circuitous, circuitous is the word that he uses. It's a great word. You see the word circuit in it with an O-U-S at the end. 
a circuit, a circuit, lengthy and circuitous. Now, <clears throat> follow with me geographically as we sort of retrace this route according to the Synoptic Gospels. Now, let me point out once again, here is Jerusalem, here's Bethany, here's Ephraim. This is just a little bit larger map. The other map only went up to about this far. Here's Jerusalem, Bethany, and Ephraim right here. And we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, that Passover was at hand, so Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem. Boy, it looks like an easy trip, doesn't it? A relatively few miles. One day's travel by foot from Ephraim to Jerusalem. But that does not factor into the material that's found in the Synoptic Gospels. So, watch as I kind of try to indicate this on the map, and then we'll backtrack. Just watch the screen for a moment. Then we'll backtrack and fill in what we've observed here. So, first of all, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, so Jesus is heading northward. Do you see how the arrow went northward? Let me do it again. From Jerusalem, Jesus is heading northward. He goes through Samaria and Galilee. And to go through Samaria and Galilee, in order, you have to be moving from south toward the north. In Galilee, Jesus, remember, Passover is at hand. Jesus would have joined with the pilgrim caravans of Galileans that were beginning to make their trip down to Jerusalem for Passover. They are starting to head southward. On the way, this is probably not always done, but probably very frequently done. They crossed over into Perea. You see where the arrow just went? Let me do that again. Watch the screen. Jesus crossed on their southern route with the, power, with the pilgrims from Galilee. He crossed into Perea. Now you might say, why did they do that? Isn't the shortest route just to continue on down here? Listen, a lot of the Jews didn't even want to pass through the land of the Samaritans. There were not cordial relations between the Jews and the Samaritans, and some of them were willing to make a longer trip just so they didn't have to pass through their land. So they went into Perea on the other side of the Jordan. Then traveling southward, <clears throat> they would come to a place where they would recross the Jordan River. See where the arrow just went? Recross the Jordan River to the city of, you probably can't read it from where you are, but to the city of Jericho. And then the last trip would be made to Jerusalem. Do you see how Culver describes this as a lengthy, circuitous route? A lengthy, circuitous route. Starts out in Ephraim, but it heads northward, then south, and then a little bit to the east, and crosses to the west again, and then that last trip. And that last leg of the trip from Jericho to Jerusalem was the setting for the famous parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, the man who was beaten, was robbed, and beaten, and left for dead by the side of the road. That was on the road that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the last leg of the trip was there. So let me help you fill in the blanks in that second review paragraph. Between these two verses, there was likely sufficient time to fit in the travels that are indicated by the synoptics. Culver 
refers to the last trip to Jerusalem as lengthy and circuitous. It headed northward through Samaria. And after entering Galilee, would have joined with the caravans of pilgrims headed south to Jerusalem for Passover. On the way south, it would have then, not hen, it would have then crossed the Jordan to the east and came to Perea. Farther south, the Jordan was recrossed to come to Jericho. The last leg of the trip was up to Jerusalem. So let's come to going to Jerusalem. According to Luke's gospel, we, we have a large block of material. This is often referred to as Luke's travel narrative or whatever. A long block of material from Luke 9.51 to 19.27. <clears throat> In this section, it begins by telling us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> what do you think that means? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. His eye was on the goal. What was the goal? The goal was Jerusalem, where he would lay down his life. He resolutely set out his face to go to Jerusalem. Could he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem and head northward and then come southward and everything? Yes, he could. Because as Culver identifies it, it would be a lengthy, circuitous trip. So even as he is heading northward, his face is set to go to Jerusalem. I, let me just pause. I didn't give you a place in the notes. To, I, I did give you a place in the notes to write a couple things that are just in general here. Why, during his years of ministry, did Jesus go to Jerusalem? I find a couple of different reasons why Jesus went to Jerusalem, sometimes combinations of them, of course. Jesus went to Jerusalem to worship, to work, to witness, to weep, and most importantly, to willingly lay down his life. And that is the particular focus of this last trip to Jerusalem. That is why Jesus' face is resolutely set for Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem to willingly lay down his life. Now, I will add this point, last bullet under number one. Scholars differ <clears throat> as to whether this section in Luke, the long section from 951 to 1927, whether that's intended to cover one trip to Jerusalem, this lengthy, circuitous final trip to Jerusalem, or to cover three. I'm not going to try to differentiate between those. Uh, perhaps it might go more in the direction of the three so that we could harmonize in certain of the information we have from the Gospel of John and the trips that John records for, Jerusalem, for Jesus to go to Jerusalem for tabernacles and dedication. But... Let's continue on. <clears throat> Sunday, the triumphal entry, point number two. This event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Obviously, not all events are 
recorded in all four of the Gospels, but certain things are, and the triumphal entry is one of them. It is so significant. As you see on the screen, one of the things that is very significantly connected with the triumphal entry is that, and Matthew's Gospel makes this especially clear, prophecy was fulfilled very specifically the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. <clears throat> now I say Matthew's gospel in particular because Matthew is the fulfillment of prophecy gospel and Matthew's gospel is the one that takes special delight in pointing out certain things by saying that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the Lord by the prophet. And this is one of those things. A second observation here. This observation comes particularly from Luke's Gospel and not from any of the other Gospels. And this is a very, very favorite part of the triumphal entry. Very favorite part. Luke's Gospel pictures the weeping of the king over Jerusalem. As he saw with prophetic foresight its destruction in 70 AD. Once again, the whole statement is this. <clears throat> Luke's gospel alone pictures the weeping of the king over Jerusalem as he saw with prophetic foresight its destruction in 70 AD. Luke's gospel alone gives us, let me read this to you. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, and may I just say that that can very easily be understood as Jesus coming from Bethany or Bethphage and coming up over the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, where he would then go down into the Kidron Valley and then come into Jerusalem. When you come to that summit, if you will, of the Mount of Olives, and Jerusalem breaks into view. Listen, even today, that's a thrilling sight. Tour guides love nothing better than to bring the tour bus along and play special music over the sound system in the bus to create the, the feeling of awe as you see the city of Jerusalem come into view. Well, the city of Jerusalem didn't look exactly the same back in Jesus' time, but the city in Jerusalem in Jesus' time had the temple standing, and it would have been a sight that would have given you chills down your back to see. Jesus had seen it many times. Now, let me read to you what happens. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. When the city came into view on the triumphal entry, Jesus burst into tears as he could Look down the card of history a little ways, just a couple decades, and see that city surrounded by Roman armies, besieged. 
and in flames, and many, many, many people dying. Why? Because they knew not the day of their visitation. The next point is, it clearly showed the kind of king that Jesus was. He rode in lowly triumph. Jesus rode into the city, and I think this picture probably demonstrates it fairly well. Jesus rode into the city on a colt, the foal of an ass. Jesus did not ride into the city on a great white charger like we do indeed picture him in Revelation 19. That's quite a different picture. Jesus is pictured as the conquering king there. Jesus rides on triumphal, on the day of triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He rides in lowly triumph. He was the Prince of Peace. And then one last point. The triumphal entry indicates that Jesus would voluntarily lay down his life. Was Jesus aware of the fact that the Sanhedrin had officially taken counsel to put him to death after the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Yeah, he knew. He knew. He knew. And yet Jesus rides into the city. And may, may it be as clear as crystal no one is going to take his life from him. He is going to lay it down. It's exactly the way he declared it in the Good Shepherd Discourse in John chapter 10. Well, what happened after Palm Sunday, the final week, the final momentous week? Now, I'm going to show you quite a number of slides here, but all the things that we see in these slides can be shoehorned in to the relatively small chart that I've given you to fill in here for the days of that final week, especially leading up to Friday, the day of his crucifixion. Monday. Three things in particular took place on that day. And the first thing is cursing the fig tree. This happened early in the morning on the way back to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry was the day before. Jesus saw a fig tree that had all leaves but no fruit. And Jesus cursed that fig tree and that, that came to pass in 24 hours because the disciples came past the next day. I don't, I don't think we should read in the Gospels there that it immediately took place. Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, there'll no more be fruit on you, and it withered right before their eyes. I think by the time they came past there the next day, it had completely withered and amazed them. So what's the bottom line here or the rest of your line? That fig tree represented Israel. Jesus wasn't being mean to a fig tree. Uh, that, that would be so easy to say if we were critical of Scripture, didn't have any regard for Scripture or of the Lord Jesus. That's the kind of thing that people do say. Jesus purposefully did that to enact the status of Israel. Israel, all kinds of leaves, all kinds of green leaves covering the tree, the worship going on and all this other stuff, but utterly without fruit. A second thing that took place on that Monday was cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple the second 
time. So it's cleansing the temple the second time. And the immediate result of Jesus cleansing the temple the second time, at least among the Jerusalem leadership, was that, again, they sought to destroy him. Third thing that took place on that Monday is found in the Gospel of John. Certain Greeks seek him. Certain Greeks seek him. Now, what's the deal with these Greeks who sought him? The, the best understanding of that is that these Greeks were uncircumcised converts to the monotheistic religion of Judaism. Now, if they were uncircumcised, they were not full proselytes. They were what might be called in other contexts God-fearers like Cornelius was. But certain Greeks sought him. They wanted to see Jesus. They approached Philip. By the way, Philip's name is of Greek derivation also, Philip, lover of horses. Philip went to Nathanael, and together they brought the Greeks to Jesus. And what did Jesus say with respect to these Greeks who were seeking to see him? Well, here's where you can finish that line. Jesus tells them that his death would be soon coming and fruit producing. Soon coming and fruit producing. Let me read you Jesus' own words from John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He likens his death to the planting of a seed in the soil. And unless that seed dies, that is, is buried in the soil, it can't produce the fruit. So Jesus' death is soon coming. It will be fruit producing. Next day of the week, Tuesday. Tuesday finds Jesus teaching in the temple. Matter of fact, many authors describe this as the last day of Jesus in those hallowed precincts. Teaching in the temple for the last time. And then, the greatest day of debate and controversy takes place there also. Representatives of the partisan leadership of the nation assault him with cleverly designed questions to entrap him. Cleverly designed questions to entrap him. Questions like what, you may ask? Well, let me show you. And I wish we had time to, to examine each of these questions and each of the answers, but questions like these. By what authority are you doing these things? Very similar to what was asked the first time he cleansed the temple. This is like two days later. But by what authority are you doing these things? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Thinking they have the perfect question here. You couldn't answer that in any way that would be satisfactory. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? The woman who had seven brothers. 
Which is the greatest commandment in the law? I mean, we might say, well, there's 10, so which is the greatest? You know, there were 600 and a few. Which is the greatest one? Can we concentrate on, you know, just this one? May I say that with each of these questions, which I'm sure that when the religious leaders came, they, they just were absolutely convinced that they had the perfect question that would indeed ensnare him or embarrass him or expose him. But every time, Jesus answered with consummate wisdom. Consummate wisdom. And they left empty-handed. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus turned the tables and asked the question, um, John's baptism, where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? Answer that one for me, then I'll get back to your question. Couldn't do it. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? How did Jesus answer that one? Uh, does anybody here have a coin? Ah, a denarius of Tiberius. Whose image and superscription is on this coin? Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so on. He answered each one with consummate wisdom. Then, following that, the third thing on this Tuesday was a scathing denunciation of the religious leaders by Jesus. A scathing denunciation. We read about this in Matthew chapter 23 especially, and that word woe comes up over and over again. Watch the screen, you guys. Jesus says, woe unto you hypocrites. Woe unto you blind guides, fools, serpents, whitewashed tombs. They were responsible for the death of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah. From A to Z, if you will, but that's not what it was intended to say, from A to Z. But from the very beginning in Genesis, right up through the one recorded in the last of their canonical books in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, covers the whole of Old Testament canonical scripture. Woe to you, a scathing denunciation, a pent-up a, a, a pent torrent if you will, against the religious leadership. Then, the final thing apparently on Tuesday, the Olivet Discourse. After leaving the temple sometime in the afternoon, he sat on the Mount of Olives looking back at the temple. When I found this picture, I, I, I kind of fell in love with this picture. I don't know how well you can see this, but this woodcut of the picture here is the Kidron Valley. Here is the city of Jerusalem looking westward. This is the Mount of Olives right here. And here is Jesus. And some, not all, of his disciples who had that perfect vantage point to look back at the city of Jerusalem and see the glory of the temple, the impressiveness of the temple. And Jesus was asked the question uh, by his disciples, you know, wh when would those things be? When would it happen that not one stone would be left standing upon another? And Jesus gives his discourse, his Olivet Discourse, regarding the last days, the last times. So many fascinating things in that. 
But may I say to you that I think the most significant thing in that are not the signs, if we want to call them, that kind of point to a particular time, pre or post or mid or whatever like that, but yet the statements that Jesus makes several times over in the course of this, you do not know the day or the hour. Therefore, be ready. What does that mean? Be ready today. Be ready today. And if Jesus doesn't come today, then what? Be ready tomorrow. Yeah, I must confess to you that although I can, I can voice these things and I can say I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly embrace these things, I would be embarrassed to confess how many days that I probably go through the busyness of my day and the demands of my day without consciously thinking of the fact that the Lord Jesus could return that day. And it would do us well to think more about that. That brings us to Wednesday of this final week. Wednesday, according to most scholars, was apparently a day of rest at his retreat in Bethany. That is because I think most authorities feel that during that final week, Jesus stayed in Bethany, most likely with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the recently raised Lazarus, but he stayed with them. Stalker is of the opinion that during that last week, Jesus didn't probably just hang around the home when he was not in the temple or whatever, but Jesus probably spent much of the time alone outside, but Bethany would be the place where he stayed. So that brings us to Thursday of the final week. Thursday of the final week. First of all, procuring a room and lamb for Passover. Procuring a room and a lamb for Passover. Specifically, it was Peter and John who were sent to procure a room and they went to the city and found a man carrying a pitcher of water, just like Jesus had said. And the suggestion is, and I think a very reasonable suggestion, that that man they found who would provide the room where he would have the final meal with his disciples was probably a disciple, probably a follower, a genuine follower. As far as procuring the lamb, actually the lamb had been procured three days earlier, but now it was carried to the temple to be slaughtered as a part of the Passover celebration in the city. Not a lamb for every person, but a lamb for every family. And from what I've read, there was a, a very rigidly followed schedule. It wasn't just people mobbed into the temple, but there was a pretty precise schedule for all that to be done. Partaking of the Paschal meal. It would have been very easy for me to just write Passover here. But I chose rather to write the word Paschal, P-A-S-C-H-A-L, the Paschal meal. What is the Paschal meal? Well, the Paschal meal is Passover, Passover. Why was it called the Paschal meal? A Pasco is a Greek verb. Pasco is the Greek verb that means I suffer. Passover is the commemoration of the Passover lamb that was slain when the Israelites came out of Egypt. 
that lamb was slain and its blood sprinkled on the doorpost and lintel so that the angel of death who was passing through the land of Egypt as the tenth plague, so that angel of death would pass over the houses of the Israelites. Partaking of the Paschal meal with his disciples. You know, I think we're all familiar with the, the famous painting of all the disciples behind the long table, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper and all. That, that was that's more of the setting of a banquet, you know, and a, picture, a photo op for a banquet in our day. The Paschal meal was partaken around a table, a table surrounded by couches on three sides. That's why the ruler of the feast in John chapter 2, when Jesus performs the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, he is described as the architraclinos, that is the superintendent of the room with the three couches. That's what the master of the feast was. Well, Jesus, as many modern translations put it, Jesus reclined at table with his disciples. Again, it seems so awkward and strange for us, but the couches would be around the table and their legs would be stretched out in that direction. And most likely, now let me just ask you this question before I go any further. How many in the room today who are hearing me, how many of you all are left-handed? Left-handed. Well, a minority of us. <laughs> a minority. We, we live in a right-handed world, to be sure. But you can assume from that then that most of them, no doubt, leaned on their left elbow and would partake of the food. That would be the most natural way to go. Some scholars, and I'm in agreement with them, even suggest some of the positions around that Passover table. Uh, Jesus being the honored guest where he would be located and then John being right next to him and John being able to lean back, probably being located at Jesus' right, being able to lean back on Jesus' bosom as he is described in the Gospel of John. Uh, Judas being on the other side of Jesus because Jesus said, he it is to whom I will give the sop when I have dipped it. He's the one that's going to betray me, so he must have been right next to Jesus, most likely. Peter could have been right across the table, so he and John could have exchanged some comments there. Very possible. But anyhow, to continue with this. At that Passover meal, one of the things that took place is the washing of the disciples' feet. What did Jesus do in washing the disciples' feet? He gave them an example, a very graphic example of lovingly and humbly serving one another. And, and an example that we all can follow. I, I'm pretty sure that here at Grace Bible Church, you guys do not wash each other's feet. In some churches, in some denominations, they do that in connection with the Lord's Supper. Are we in disobedience because we don't do that? No. Jesus is leaving an example of humbly serving one another. How can we humbly serve one another in a multitude of ways? A multitude of ways. And Jesus performed the servant's task. And then at that Passover table, and, and, and this, I'm sure, would have gripped Jesus with such deep emotion, Jesus foretold the betrayal by Judas and the denials 
by Peter. At that Passover table, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which was to be perpetually remembered until his return, which we do practice, don't we? Yes. Following that, parting discourses, which are recorded only in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. Matter of fact, one of the most meaningful things, I think, that can be done in connection with observing uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday is the night before Good Friday, reading through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Reading through all those chapters without pause because all those chapters took place in a space of just a few hours at the Passover table and beyond before his arrest in Gethsemane. And the prayers of Jesus. The prayers of Jesus. Now, you wonder, how do I fit that in? Let me show you. Let me show you, first of all, a summary of the parting discourses of Jesus. John 14, words of comfort. Some of the most comforting words you will ever read in all of Scripture in John 14. Matter of fact, words that are very frequently read at funerals. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you and all that. John 15, the true vine discourse. I am the vine. My Father is the vine dresser or the husbandman. You are the branches. John 16, words of prediction. Uh, what, what does Jesus predict in John 16? Well, not only does he predict the coming of the Holy Spirit, not only does he predict his coming resurrection, but Jesus also predicts at the very beginning of the chapter, coming persecution. He starts with these words. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Persecution is not far off for these men. And then what about the prayers? And here's where you can fill in the blanks here. There's not just one prayer, but there are two. John's gospel gives the high priestly prayer. So that's your first blank. The high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. That is the longest recorded prayer we have from Jesus. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. And then Jesus prays for all those who would believe through them. Meaning, and I'm in thorough agreement with those who have made this observation, no Christian believer was omitted from that prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer, John 17. But then the synoptics, record the more familiar prayer, and that is the prayer of agony, or if you wish to write the word uh, submission underneath of that blank, that would be a good thing to do. The prayer of agony and submission, prayed in the darkness of Gethsemane, prayed when his disciples 
the chosen few who had gone further with him into the shadows are sleeping and Jesus in such great agony that, as Dr. Luke says, sweat as great drops of blood fell to the ground. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What next? Well, by then, I say Friday because by our calendar reckoning, the calendar had probably turned to Friday. Meaning what? We've probably passed midnight Friday night or arrived somewhere around midnight. So that brings us to the next bullet in our notes here, and that is the betrayal by, and you know well who it was, Judas Iscariot. The betrayal by Judas Iscariot. And I've placed a quotation in here when I first discovered this quotation in my study years ago. I love this quotation so much from Dr. Hendrickson and his commentary on John. He says, for the foulest deed that was ever committed, Judas selected the most sacred night, Passover, the most sacred place, the sanctuary of the master's devotions, and the most sacred symbol, a kiss. That's what Judas chose. He chose that particular night. He came to the place which was one of the master's favorite places to go for devotion. And he betrayed the impeccable Son of God. His master that he had seen live out before him all those months, perfectly fulfilling all the word of God. And he betrayed him with a kiss for how much money? 30 pieces of silver, which was in the Old Testament the price of the replacement of a servant who had been gored by an ox. You know, he would pay his restitution 30 pieces of silver. When Jesus was arrested, or rather allowed himself to be taken in Gethsemane, a series of trials began. I think students are oftentimes amazed when I say to them that the trials are a little bit more complex than you may realize. We have to put all the information in the four Gospels together and it can be thoroughly harmonized together without contradiction. But when we put it all together, we realize that following his arrest, Jesus actually had two separate trials. One was a religious trial and the other was a civil trial. And each of those trials had three stages to it. So here we go. I put it in the form of a chart for you. Underneath of number four, the final triumph of injustice is what I entitled this here. It was likely sometime around midnight when Jesus was arrested. The information in all the Gospels can be harmonized together to indicate that there were two trials, religious and civil each having three stages. So, let's look at these. First, under the religious, was before Annas, all caps on the screen, A-N-N-A-S, Annas, the retired high priest. I didn't realize this, or I'd forgotten this until I reread it just recently, that Annas was like 70 years old. 
70 years old. Annas was not the ruling high priest. Annas had been followed by five sons who had served as high priest. And now, the one who was serving, whose name we'll put in the next box in a moment, was his son-in-law. But Annas was still viewed as the ruling spirit of the Sanhedrin. His opinion was so valued that they would not even think of making a decision without asking the question first, what would Annas say? So Jesus is first taken before Annas, the retired high priest, for a preliminary hearing. Second box, and all you need to write in there is Caiaphas, the reigning high priest. But I've given just a couple more details. The reigning or ruling high priest. Annas' son-in-law. He is taken before Caiaphas, and in the course of the questioning there, Caiaphas makes the pious accusation that Jesus had blasphemed. And what does Caiaphas do? He tears his garment in mock horror that blasphemy has been committed before him because Jesus has said that he was the Son of God. He had not blasphemed. The third stage was before the Sanhedrin at sunrise. It was a mere formality because the Sanhedrin had decided well before this that he must be put to death. Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. Three stages of Jesus' religious trial. Now, when is this taking place? All through the night from the time of Jesus' arrest until probably about 6 o'clock the next morning, what the Scots would call the peep of day, when the first springs of light began to peep over the eastern hills. And after they had condemned him or formalized their condemnation of him, three civil trials commenced, three stages of the civil trials. First, Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, the governor of the southern part of Palestine, who, again and again in his questioning of Jesus, declares, I find in him no fault at all, which I'm sure was an incredible frustration to the Jews who were intent on achieving their purposes right here. But in the course of questioning, Pilate found that Jesus was from Galilee. Pilate wanted to rid himself of any responsibility here, and it just so happened that the Tetrarch of Galilee was in town, namely Herod Antipas. So the second part of the civil trials before Herod Antipas, Jesus was sent before him. Herod Antipas, who was ruling in Galilee, had heard about the many miracles that Jesus had done. Remember, most of his mighty works were done in Galilee. And Herod Antipas saw the opportunity to have a miracle worked right before him. That's what he desired. Did Jesus do that? Of course not. Jesus did not even speak a word before Herod Antipas. So, Herod Antipas arrayed Jesus in mocking kingly apparel and sent him back to Pontius Pilate for the third aspect of the civil trial. And to make a long story short, 
the relentless pressure of the mob finally brought Pilate to the point where he handed Jesus over to be crucified. What was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, in the light of the fact that Pontius Pilate was determined to let Jesus go? I think the straw that broke the camel's back was when the mob said, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. What do they mean by that? If you let Jesus go, we are going to get word to Rome as quickly as we can possibly get it there as to what you have done and you have let a man go who claimed to be king and you know what that means. You will be pulled back to Rome faster than you could shake a stick. And at that point, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified and said, shall I crucify your king? What did the Jews respond by saying? We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine how ridiculous those words are? The Jews who groaned under the yoke of Roman oppression saying, we have no king but Caesar. And then even adding to that, saying, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Oh, my goodness. Josephus said that when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., there were so many crosses that were erected that the Romans ran out of wood to make crosses and space to put them up. That just sent shivers down my back. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Torture before the cross. This is, again, one of the pictures by the artist James Tissot. Number five, the execution of the king of the Jews. First bullet, the torture before the cross, scourging, mistreatment, etc. Scourging. Scourging was a, a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and scourging was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. It was wicked. It was horrible. The man of sorrows. From the scourging, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. There are the next two blanks for your notes. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' condition, physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. Now, I have a little parenthetic statement, abbreviated, to fit in the space that I had available here. JAMA 32186. 1455 to 63. You know what that is a reference to? An article that appeared in the scholarly magazine entitled The Journal of the American Medical Association, J-A-M-A. Is that a Christian magazine? By no means. By no means. But back in 1986, an article appeared in there. I think it was entitled On the Physical Aspects of the Crucifixion of Christ. And has all kinds of drawings, like that first drawing on the previous slide of the individual being, uh, being fixed to a pillar to be scourged 
and the picture of the whip and all kinds of other pictures that were worthy of a medical journal. That article was written by not one single individual, but at least three individuals, some of whom were seminary trained and some of whom were medically trained. Why was that article written? That article was written to show that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross. He did, in fact, die on the cross. You know, when that article came out, and believe me, it is a lengthy article, and it's an article with copious footnotes, a lot of footnotes. You can find it if you go online. You can find it if you go online. And you ought to look for it and print it out and stick it in a file folder and read it once in a while. It's not easy to read. It really isn't. It's not easy to read. When that article came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, there was a firestorm of protest by people who did not want to read such a thing in a medical journal. The Via Dolorosa means what? The way of sorrows. The Via Dolorosa is the Latin expression for the way of sorrows, which is usually applied to the route that was taken from when Jesus was condemned at last by Pilate and handed over to be crucified, the route that was followed to the cross. The crucifixion, the place? The place was called Golgotha, and there are two places. Now, Golgotha means the place of a skull, the place of a skull. And there are actually two competing sites in the Holy Land which make the claim to be the actual place where Jesus was crucified. I actually have them in the reverse order on the slide here, and I'm sorry for that. Number one, I'll put the other one on the board here so you can write it. Number one is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. As the slide here indicates, and that's a picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that is the site revered by Roman Catholics, for example. And it has all the trappings of, of Catholic worship and so on there. The other place is a place called Gordon's Calvary, named after Chinese Gordon, the uh, British military general. Uh, Gordon's Calvary is revered by many Protestants. Matter of fact, if you ever go to the Holy Land, I am absolutely sure that you will most likely visit both places, but I'm also pretty sure that one of the most memorable places you will ever visit in your life will be Gordon's Calvary and the Garden Tomb. Whether or not that was the actual place where Jesus was crucified and entombed, we can't know for certainty. But I want to tell you what, you go there and it is kept in such a worshipful state that you'll never forget it. The time. What was the time of the crucifixion? Well, there are some details that are given in the Gospels to inform us of the time. John 19.14 says it was the preparation which would mean Friday. Parascue is the Greek word for preparation, and that is actually the labeling of the day Friday on a Greek calendar, if we had a Greek calendar hanging on our wall. 
It was the preparation of the Passover, meaning, no doubt, Passover week. It was the Friday of Passover week and about the sixth hour, John tells us in John 19, 14. The sixth hour, most likely meaning 6 a.m. by Roman reckoning. Mark's gospel, however, adds some information as well. And remember, I am absolutely convinced that the gospels are four thoroughly harmonious accounts of the life of Christ. And thus, they're not errors or contradictions. So how do we best understand these things? Mark 15, 25 says, it was the ninth hour, quite likely, that should be understood as meaning 9 a.m. by Jewish reckoning. <clears throat> Excuse me, it was the third hour, 9 a.m. by Jewish reckoning. The Jews reckon from 6 to 6 in their reckoning of a day. So the Jewish Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. Friday evening. Well, let's put a couple details in underneath of that. About three hours were consumed in gathering the two other condemned men, preparing the means and site, S-I-T-E, preparing the means and site of execution and traveling to the site. So that's how we can deal with the 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the two records from John and Mark. The physical details, the physical details, God's Word, says Culver, God's Word, the Bible, delicately draws a veil over most physical details of the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, it's, it's very similar to what we observed at the birth of Jesus. There's only two verses that describe his birth, and it's like a veil was drawn around the details there. When it comes to the crucifixion, most of the physical details, we don't have gruesome accounts, long, prolonged, gruesome accounts of the details of the crucifixion. It's like a veil is drawn around that. However, the awful details of crucifixion can be known from such sources as the one mentioned above from the Journal of the American Medical Association. The two most prominent causes of death were probably hypovolemic shock, would be the military, the medical term, hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Do you know what exhaustion asphyxia would make reference to? Suffocating to death. You might say, how would suffocating to death be connected with that? At the crucifixion, the individual was hung on the cross, and all the weight would force the diaphragm up here, and every breath would be a fight. Every breath would be a fight. Matter of fact, if there was indeed some sort of little block that the feet were nailed to. If not, they were nailed right to the cross. The only way that that tension could be relieved was by pushing up to get a breath, and the hands would rotate on the nails, the nails probably driven through the wrists part, which certainly qualified as the hand. It'd be difficult to speak 
We're going to talk about the seven last words in a minute. You know how they would hasten death if they had to end a person's life quickly on the cross? Boom. Break the legs, and the support was totally gone, and the person would suffocate very quickly. That's it. Now, anybody who's had a, a struggle with breathing, asthma or anything related to that, and I've had that at times, can understand the difficulty of trying to, trying to get breath, especially when it's difficult to expel breath. Very, very difficult. Now, there's so much more connected with the death of Christ and the physical sufferings. True? So much more. So much more. But we'll talk about that by and by. So, the note here, uh, or the last part of that line after asphyxia, the normal way to hasten death was by breaking the legs of the victim. Note, Jesus was by no means the only one to die by crucifixion. I mentioned a few moments ago how many died in 70 AD. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were crucified. And yet, even though Jesus died in the same way that so many others died, Jesus died in such a uniquely distinctive way when he was crucified. Many victims of crucifixion lingered two or three days or even four days. Jesus died in the space of maybe six hours max. And some might say, well, he must have suffered a lot less then. No, 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 no. Hell came to Calvary that day, true or false? Hell came to Calvary that day. Jesus bore in his body the full price of all my sins. What did one of my sins demand from God? Eternity of separation in hell. How many sins have I committed in my 72 years? I don't know if the number was lit up on my forehead. I don't think my forehead is even wide enough for it. I would probably pass dead away of horror but not for my sins only. Quickly, as, as we finish this. Seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. These sayings divided into the two periods of time, apparently of three hours each, from 9 a.m. till noon, and then from noon till 3 when there was darkness in the land. First saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Second, to the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Third statement, two sayings that are combined in this one statement. Woman, behold your son. Jesus is talking here to Mary, his mother, about John the Apostle. So son is not in capitals. Woman, behold your son, John who will take you into his care, and thus, behold your mother, he says to John. Then during those hours of darkness, the words that we cannot fathom the depths of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
Then the words, I thirst, that scripture might be fulfilled. Then the word, tetelestai, it is finished. That's that strange looking Greek word there. One of the greatest Greek words that there is. And finally, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. With those final words, the one they had called Jesus of Nazareth breathed his last. The one who was utterly without sin, who had gone about doing good and healing, was now limp on a rugged Roman cross, unjustly murdered. His many enemies had now finally obtained their desired goal. They had eliminated him. It was over, sadly over. The most tragic story ever written. Unless. Let's take a short break, and then we'll look at unless. I, I tell you what, if we had to go home right now, you guys, we should go home as the saddest people in the whole world. But we don't have to go home right now. <laughs> I, would say, I would say not. I would say not. It's essentially saying I, I commend my life, you know.
the best of all possible endings. Last session, the worst of all possible endings, and if it had ended there, it would indeed have been that. The verses that I've written underneath of this session's title are from Acts 2, 23 and 24. Listen as I read these verses from the words of Peter on Pentecost. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Praise God. Praise God. We really need to touch a little bit on what we did, what we ended with last time, before we can move fully into this time. And the first is the question, why did it have to end that way? Why did it have to end with that scene of Jesus on the cross and breathing his last? I'll tell you what, there are probably a number more answers that could be given than these, but I think these are three very significant answers. First of all, because of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. If you ever want to see a picture of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, there's no better place to look than the cross. Sin is what did that to Jesus. My sin did that to Jesus. Your sin did that to Jesus. The second thing is because of the exacting justice of God. The wages of sin is death. Our God is a holy God of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Death, excuse me, sin must be punished. Not with a slap on the finger or a tap on the hand with a ruler. Sin is such a horrendous offense, cosmic treason against our Creator, that it deserves the wrath of Almighty God to be visited upon it. Why did it have to end that way with Jesus on the cross? Because God provided His Son as the mediator, the redeemer of God's elect. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who was it? The man, Christ Jesus. One God and one mediator. The cross shows us the only hope of mankind. It shows us the only way of salvation. There are not many ways of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. Years ago in a devotional magazine that I've loved to use for 
couple decades, I read this statement, and I love to write these memorable statements on little cards, but the statement was this. What death did to Jesus is nothing compared to what Jesus did to death. If, if it had ended on the cross, then sorry, but, but Jesus was a liar because he said he'd be raised from the dead. And if that ended at all, who knows what we can trust of what he said. So let's make a rapid survey then of the best of all possible endings. Matthew's gospel gives us a very interesting record or list, if you will, of four specific things that happened at the very moment of his death. First of all, the veil of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. From top to bottom. The veil that divided between the holy place and the holy of holies. When we think of a veil, we think of something light and frilly. Do you know how big that curtain was that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies? It was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. A man couldn't hang that curtain by himself. It took oxen and many men in the hanging of that curtain, in the washing of that curtain, and all those things. But that huge curtain that represented the fact that we, as sinful men, could not enter into God's presence, ripped from top to bottom. That was God's doing. A second thing, there was an earthquake, and rocks were split at the very moment of his death. This was an earth-shaking event that had taken place on that mountain, on Golgotha. Third, Matthew tells us that graves were opened and many saints were raised. Now, I, I must confess to you this afternoon that I'm not quite fully sure how to grasp this and put this all together. I've read, I've read about this in the commentaries and different suggestions that are made. But boy, I'll tell you what, if I could understand it from face value, and I'm not sure that I can understand it in exactly this way, I would like to think this is what happened. At the moment of his death, graves were open, saints who had already died came out, and one of them went up to Caiaphas's door and banged on that door and said, I used to be dead, and I'm alive because Jesus conquered death. Well, that's a little bit of an elaboration <laughs> on Matthew's gospel. <laughs> and unless you repent, you're going to be, you know, yeah. I don't know. I, I, guys, my energy is, is waning here, but there's, there's room for a little bit of a burst there. But a fourth thing, the centurion at the cross. The centurion at the cross said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion at the cross recognized that this is man, this man is who he said he was. The entombment. The entombment. 
The requirement of the Mosaic Law was that burial had to take place before sundown for executed men. You know what that meant? That meant that uh, the legs of these men had to be broken. And the legs of the two criminals were broken, but Jesus' legs were not broken. Why not? Because it was prophesied that not a bone of his body would be broken. But there's another reason, too, because he was dead already. They knew he was dead already. The preparations for burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus secured the body, wrapped it in linen and spices, and placed it in a new tomb, by the way, that of a rich man, just what Isaiah 53 had said. Further plans of the women. They acquired spices to more permanently anoint the body after the Sabbath passed. See, things had to be done hurriedly right now to get the body off the cross and into the tomb before the day was over. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't remember on that. I, I, I forget. And then precautions by his enemies. Why? Knowing that he said that he would arise, they feared that the disciples would steal the body and say that he was raised. Thus, they sealed the stone and set a guard. Now, how did they seal the stone? By caulking all around it so it was airtight? No, no. By placing a seal on it to certify that it was not tampered with. If that seal was broken, then it had been tampered with. They set a seal, and they set a guard. Listen, nothing's coming out of this tomb. Nothing. I, I wonder if in these wicked, wicked men who hated Jesus so and had obtained their purpose in finally executing him on the cross, I wonder if in their wicked minds there was this fear. What if? What if he really is who he said he was? And he comes out of the grave. The devastated disciples. Some of the bits of information that we have in the Gospels indicate that they met behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They were afraid that the same kind of things were going to happen to them. They mourned and wept like part of the painting that I've chosen for this picture, the picture of Peter weeping, apparently, after his denial of the Lord Jesus. When the first reports came to these men, they seemed to these men like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Uh, listen, that's what we're told in Scripture. That's what we're told about the men who heard Jesus say that he would be raised from the dead. 
And one of the things I failed to emphasize to you was during that, that, that long narrative of, uh, of the Gospel of Luke from 951 well into chapter 19, we read several times over from the time that Jesus was on that retreat to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples that Jesus began to tell them that he must soon go to Jerusalem and suffer many things there at the hands of the religious leaders and be crucified and the third day be raised again from the dead. And periodically that announcement is repeated as Jesus draws closer and closer to Jerusalem. These men were not ignorant of that, but, but these men were absolutely a devastated lot. And as the note at the bottom of the page says, these are the ones who heard Jesus repeatedly tell of his coming resurrection. Would these be the ones who would turn the world upside down? Well, something's going to have to change them. Something radical is going to have to change them. Well, in your notes, all you have is one more page to go, right? It's in the form of a chart. And as you have this chart in your notes, I'm actually going to show you more pages than that chart, or more uh, slides than that chart, but you will be able to fill this in pretty quickly, I think, okay? So here we go on the chart. May I say in preparation for that, that in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 3, Dr. Luke put it this way. He, meaning Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many convincing proofs, being seen by them for 40 days. The period of his post-resurrection, pre-ascension resurrection appearances was 40 days. And many convincing proofs were shown during that period. So let's look at them quickly. You can see that the first five of them all took place on what we might call the first resurrection day, the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's begin to look at them. Resurrection Sunday, the first one, to whom? Mary Magdalene, at the tomb is the place, at the tomb. And the way I've summarized it here, and so much more could be said, but the way I've summarized it is, Mary and the gardener. Mary and the gardener. Mary Magdalene thought that Jesus was the gardener. And what did Jesus say? One word. Mary. Or, most likely, Miriam. Meaning what? The Aramaic. The familiar Aramaic name for Mary. Miriam. And all it took was that one word from Jesus, and Mary Magdalene was at Jesus' feet in full recognition that he was triumphant over the grave. You know, it's not insignificant here, you guys, that the first resurrection appearance is to a woman. It's not. These were fabricated accounts. Nobody, nobody would begin the story that way and expect for it to be believed. Mary Magdalene, so privileged. Still, on that resurrection Sunday, Jesus appears next to the other women on the way from the tomb. That's where, 
on the way from the tomb. And let's summarize here. Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Third appearance. <clears throat> Still on that same day, this time to Peter, in Jerusalem. And you know what we have to say under the column, what? It was a private meeting. We have enough mentions of this in the scripture references that I have listed there from Luke 24, 34 and 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that Jesus did in fact appear to Peter privately with nobody else there, and it's none of our business what they talked about. That seems to be the impression that we get from scriptures. None of our business. I, I think Peter needed a, a, a private reinstatement by Jesus. It wasn't that long before this that Peter had three times denied that he knew Jesus at all. But then after that third denial, when the cock crowed, and when Peter looked and saw Jesus and their eyes met, and then when Peter remembered what Jesus would said, what Jesus had said, Peter went out and wept bitterly. As one of the writers said, Peter went out and wept like nobody like Peter. Nobody but Peter could weep. And now there's a private meeting on that first day. Still on that first Sunday, the longest account that we have of any of the resurrection appearances was the appearance to Cleopas and his companion, which I read just a little excerpt from their conversation. This was on the way to the village of Emmaus. On the way to the village of Emmaus, which apparently was about seven miles away from Jerusalem, and boy, these guys were going to make a sad trip to Emmaus, a sad trip, because all of their messianic hopes had been crushed. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, <clears throat> but now it was the third day since he was crucified, and all their messianic hopes were crushed, and Jesus walked with them, and they didn't even know it was Jesus at first. And Jesus gave what was surely one of the greatest Bible lessons ever in the history of the world to those two men. As he showed them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, especially the fact that the Messiah had to suffer. See, that was the big hang-up for the Jews. They were all looking for the Messiah to come, but they were looking for a Messiah who would come, win triumph over the Romans, set up his throne, and rule, and they would rule with him. There was no thought of suffering. But Jesus had suffered, and they thought it was over. Jesus walked with them, and he opened their eyes, and he opened their hearts as he opened the scriptures to them. So let's put open scriptures and open eyes. Open scriptures and open eyes. It, it was actually when he arrived at Emmaus with them and he broke bread with them that they knew him. And then he disappeared. And they couldn't get back to Jerusalem fast enough. You know, the observation has been made. And I think people might be right who make this observation. Because they didn't know him until he broke bread with them. 
could it be that he broke the bread and they saw the wounds as he broke the bread? I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe they just recognized the familiarity of the breaking bread with the way he broke bread at other times. I don't know, but their eyes were opened at that point. Still on that resurrection Sunday, when Jesus left them, he went back to Jerusalem, and the location is in the upper room when he meets with ten of the disciples. Two are absent. One is permanently absent. Judas had committed suicide. But the other was Thomas. Thomas was absent because he had made, of course, the demands that unless he would see and inspect the wounds, uh, he, he wouldn't believe, doubting Thomas. And so, meeting behind closed doors, the sudden appearance, and the reality of a bodily resurrection. Now, what evidence did Jesus give of a bodily resurrection, I might ask? I think two things. Jesus said, touch me and see. You know, as they, truly, this was Jesus' risen and glorified body, but it was a body that could be touched. They wouldn't reach out for him and their hand go right through him. They could reach out and touch him, and yet that same body could come into the room without somebody coming to open the door. The second thing Jesus did was said, do you have anything to eat here? And they did, didn't they? They had a piece of broad fish and some honeycomb, and he ate it. Why did he do those things? To show that he was bodily raised from the dead? His resurrection was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. He was raised in the same body in which he was suffered, is the way so many doctrinal statements put it. And we have to realize that it's a glorified body after the resurrection. All right, we turn the calendar ahead one week. One week, and we find that Jesus appears now to the 11 disciples because Thomas is present this time. It's the upper room once again. And Jesus issues the challenge to Thomas. Reach into your hand. Touch my side. Inspect the wounds. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, how would you write that in the chart there? I would say the confession of Thomas. My Lord and my God. Did Thomas actually touch the wounds? I don't know. It doesn't state that specifically. I wouldn't quibble over whether he did or didn't. But I do know this, that he said, my Lord and my God. Sometime later, we're not given specific details as to how much time later, but sometime later at daybreak, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples who are named in that reference in the Gospel of John, where on the sea of Tiberius. On the Sea of Tiberius is what John calls it. Now, T-I-B-E-R-I-U-S, the Sea of Tiberius. So where's the Sea of Tiberius? The Sea of Tiberius is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is sometimes called the Sea of Tiberius. It's sometimes called Chinneroth. Now, Tiberius is a city that was located uh, having been built by one of uh, Herod the Great's sons right on the shore 
of the Sea of Galilee and is still a very prominent city there today. But seven disciples had gone fishing there, uh, kind of under Peter's leadership. Now, were they right or wrong in going fishing? It's not, it's not my purpose today to discuss that, although I, I, I wouldn't be overly critical of them. They were told to go to Galilee and, and, and wait for him, and they had done that. And they were waiting without sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They were being useful, so I, I, I wouldn't blame them. But these guys were fishermen, and they had fished all night and come up empty. And then saw a figure on the shore, not knowing that it was Jesus. And that figure on the shore said to them, uh, Children, you don't have anything to eat, do you? The way it's constructed in the Greek is a question expecting a negative answer. Their answer would be, no, I'm quite anything. So what did he say? Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and what happened? 153 fish. So on the right-hand side, the miraculous catch of fish, the miraculous catch of fish. Somebody counted the fish. It's part of an eyewitness account here with specifics like this. And then, in the rest of John's account, we read that Jesus had prepared a breakfast on the beach for them when they arrived on the beach. Uh, they had kind of arrived on the beach in two stages. They couldn't get there fast enough for Peter, so he jumped out of the boat when he recognized it was Jesus, and then the rest of them came in. But that breakfast on the beach is where the famous conversation took place when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And three questions and three answers. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the interplay of the words agapao and phileo in the Greek. And I think the essence of it is that Peter was saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but I realize that my love for you is not all that it ought to be. And Jesus publicly reinstated him by saying, Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. <clears throat> Sometime later, again, we're not given specifics on this. Sometime later, on a mountain in Galilee, that's the place, or specifically, it's the mountain in Galilee, because it said, it has the definite article in Greek, so it must have been a specific mountain in Galilee. What mountain would that be? Not named, but maybe Mount Tabor. On the mountain in Galilee, he met with 11 of his disciples. Worship and doubt. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And then, the Great Commission. That's the occasion for the Great Commission. And then, th this one fascinates me every time that I read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sometime later, and as you can see from your chart, perhaps this is the same resurrection appearance as the one we've just looked at here. But sometime later, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Paul was writing 1 Corinthians perhaps about 25 years after the actual event had taken place. And Paul says, some of these people are still alive, and you can go talk to them. 
Many of them have died, but some are still alive. So most still living in Paul's time is your right-hand column for the 500 brethren at once. You know, one of the attacks on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is what has been called for many, many years the visionary hypothesis, meaning that the disciples so much wanted to believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead, that they, they actually ha had a vision, an imaginary vision afterwards, and believed that it was real. Uh, how absurd is that, especially when you see the sad state of the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion? And I'm telling you what, this one resurrection appearance puts that to a lie right away. 500 brethren at once don't have a visioner, uh, the same vision. They don't. Not at all. <clears throat> Again, this is getting a little old sometime later, but during the scope of 40 days, Jesus appeared to, and this is recorded again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, to James, the Lord's brother, specifically his half-brother, and we're not given any information about the nature of this, but Paul states that this took place. He appeared to the Lord's brother. You know, most evangelical Bible scholars believe that it was nothing short of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changed Jesus' brothers, specifically his half-brothers, like James and Jude, from being unbelievers to being believers. They were not believers during Jesus' lifetime. You go back and read John chapter 7, and it says there very specifically his brothers didn't believe in him. But then in Acts chapter 1, they are gathered together with the other believers in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit. What changed them? Most likely, it was the resurrection, most likely this resurrection appearance. And lo and behold, one of those two brothers, James, writes an epistle in our New Testament, and lo and behold, the other of those brothers, Jude, writes an epistle in our New Testament. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus meets with certainly the disciples, maybe more than just the disciples, on the Mount of Olives. And it was the time of his ascension, and Jesus reiterated his commission to them, Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And Jesus was taken up. Now, is there more that could be said about the life of Christ? Uh, to be sure. <laughs> to be sure. I, I, I tell you what. To be sure, I'm thoroughly spent. I am thoroughly spent, to be sure. But I am not only thoroughly spent, but thrillingly spent. I am thrillingly spent. And I just want to thank you all once again for taking precious weekend time and being here. I, I, I treasure this, and thank you very much. And I say once again, we are the most blessed people 
imaginable to know Jesus. He sought us and he brought us to himself. He sought us and he brought us to himself. Why? Because we were better than other folk? No. No. Because he chose to love us. Uh, you know what? As I made mention of earlier on, the disciples in, I think it's Acts chapter 4, when, when they are brought before the Sanhedrin and threatened, don't preach about this anymore. Um, they said, you know what? We're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep preaching. And the religious leaders took notice of them that they'd been with Jesus. And that, that's my prayer for myself and for you, that people would take notice that we've been with Jesus. And not just that we've been with him, but we love him. And we want to serve him. We want to please him. And we long for the day when we will see him. You know, that day won't be far off. Uh, theoretically, it might be closer for some of us than others, just numerically, year-wise, but we don't know. We don't know. But by any reckoning, it won't be far off. It won't be far off. But we will see him. And then, when we see him, for the first time ever, we will be able to say to him, I love you, Lord Jesus, and say that to him without any twinge of sin or shortcoming in our heart or in our mind or in our voice. Don't you long for that day when we'll see him? Well, until that day, may we, may we be found faithful in walking for him. God bless you, people. God bless you. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. Thank you, Lord, that your word reveals to us what we are to know about you, the triune God, and reveals to us how we are to live before you, what we are to believe and how we are to live, our rule of faith and practice. Father, may we never tire of studying your word. May we never tire of delighting in you or learning about you or serving you. And Lord, I pray for your blessings upon this church, upon its pastor and its leadership, upon all those who attend here. Lord, pour out your blessings and do great things in this place. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.